Welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmien, and with me in the studio is my friend Niklas Savos. How are you today? I'm fine today. I had this magnificently bad virus uh, last week, but uh, I'm really happy that it's gone. I'm glad you're back in the studio and that we can record, because today we are eager to speak with a legend, Robert Hagström. He is a chief investment officer as well as a senior portfolio manager at Equity Compass. And in 1994, he was the first author to really popularize Warren Buffett in his book, The Warren Buffett Way, which has sold more than one million copies worldwide and became a New York Times bestseller. Hagstrom has more than 35 years of investment experience. Prior to joining Equity Compass, he was the chief investment strategist of Leg Mason Investment Council. And before that, the portfolio manager of the growth equity strategy at Leg Mason Capital Management, where he managed over $7 billion in assets. Hagstrom was the recipient of honorable mention as Morningstar's US Equity Manager of the Year in 2007. In addition to The Warren Buffett Way, Hagstrom has written several more books on Buffett, as well as The NASCAR Way and The Detective and the Investor. Today, we are going to speak to Hagstrom about his book, Investing the Last Liberal Art, first published in the year 2000 and with a second edition released in 2013. Niklas, what is The Last Liberal Art about and why have we chosen this one? So the purpose of the book is to embrace a multidisciplinary approach to investing where, where lessons from physics, biology, psychology, literature and more are used to build a kind of a spider web of knowledge that ultimately leads to better decisions. Hagstrom believes that it's not enough to grasp accounting, economics and finance to generate good investment returns over the long haul, an idea which I'm highly sympathetic to. Me too. And we try to include the multidisciplinary approach and some mental models in most of our conversations here in the podcast. Uh, I would especially highlight our discussions with Jake Taylor in episode two and Daniel Chang in episode 11 and also with Pete Davis in episode three, where we talked about dedication and commitments. But who would you say that the book The Last Liberal Art is most useful for? I think all investors could uh, benefit from, from this view. Uh, especially to to get better insights and create better narratives. Um, And I think it's also for other professions where good thinking and decision-making is what matters and that are eager to improve. For me, this is not a subject that you read and forget about, but you need to use it as a manual during the course of your life and, and increase your knowledge over time. And how is the book structured? So each chapter covers the lessons from one discipline, starting with physics and ending with decision-making. The other disciplines covered are biology, sociology, psychology, philosophy, literature, and mathematics. Uh, Having read a few books on the topic myself, I think this book stands out from the others by being one of the first and also for embracing simplification. Hagstrom is not bringing up as many models as possible from each discipline, but instead focuses on the core ideas, such as evolution within biology and the law of equilibrium within physics. He also links the lessons to how we as investors can look at financial markets and stock picking. We are truly proud to have this extraordinary author and investor on the show. Here comes our conversation with Robert Hagstrom. Hello, Robert, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. Where are you today? Uh, I'm actually in uh, Vero Beach, Florida, 
Uh, I enjoy spending uh, the winter season down south where it's a little bit warmer. Back home, I think it's seven degrees Fahrenheit, so it's a little cold for us. <laughs> Sounds nice. Um, so we have to ask you first, being a podcast from Sweden, um, your name is quite common in in Sweden. So what's your heritage? Well, actually, um, it's funny that you say that. There are not that many Hagstroms in the state of Pennsylvania. I think there are three. Um, my great-great-grandfather came from Sweden, was a uh, cabinet maker, and uh, he um, uh, moved to Kansas in the Midwest. And, and then from there, my family moved back into uh, Tennessee, where I was born and raised in the state of Tennessee. And I went to school at Villanova University up in Philadelphia and uh, stayed and married and, and raised a family there. And now the the dots connect today. <laughs> <laughs> and how did your passion for investing start? Well, that, that's, it's an interesting, that's an interesting story, uh, Eddie. It, 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 it was kind of a roundabout. I was a political science major in college, which, which, which is a liberal arts education uh, when you think about the study of political science, because it is about history and philosophy and psychology and economics. So very much a liberal arts. And I had done some writing in college. I wrote for the newspaper and our college newspaper and did some writing in a local newspaper and and actually wanted to go to Washington DC and, and be an investigative reporter, but I didn't much care for Washington DC. The politics was not of my taste. And I came back um, and, and asked the, um, the editor of the newspaper, could I have a job? And he said, well, we can't afford to pay you, but if you're willing to uh, go sell advertising, you know, quarter page ad in the newspaper, maybe we'll let you write a column once a month. And so I, I walked up and down the the, the main line, uh, which is a, a street outside of Philadelphia and called Route 30 Lancaster Avenue, knocked on doors. And one day I knocked on something called Leg Mason Woodwalker, members of the New York Stock Exchange. I had no idea what it was. I thought maybe it was a law firm or an accounting firm. And I walked in and I said, could I see the manager and walked into his office. I said, hi, I'm Robert Haxton. Would you like to uh, buy a quarter page ad in the newspaper? And the branch manager said, no, would you like to be a stockbroker? And I said, <laughs> I said, well, you know, maybe that's a little bit uh, better job than selling advertising. So I, that's exactly how I got started. I went into training at Lake Mason down in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, we trained for three weeks. I, I thought I'd made a terrible mistake. I, I, I wasn't uh, financially literate. I didn't understand finance and accounting. But the next to last night, I read a uh, an annual report, uh, by a Berkshire Hathaway annual report, which I'd never heard of the company, written by this guy, Warren Buffett, which I'd never heard of. And it, it was the proverbial light bulb goes on, uh, you know, the way that he explained investing to me as companies, as people, and things like that just made perfect sense. And, and then that's how my career got started, was uh, following and studying Warren Buffett. And that was in 1984, right? Correct. Yes, exactly right. A long time ago. <laughs> nice. And you write in your fantastic book, Investing the Last Liberal Art, that investment decisions become more certain when ideas from other disciplines lead to the same conclusions. And to set the stage a bit, please uh, tell us what you mean by that. Well, I, you know, it's it's just maybe a, a psychological. When, when when you get confirmation, what someone else agrees with you, or whatever the case may be, the more confirmation that you get about an outlook, an insight, an idea, uh, other than your own, if if you can get additional confirmations, it, it it emboldens your thinking, gives you more confidence. And so, step back, Nicholas. What we're doing is is basically looking at the ideas in different disciplines 
whether it's biology, philosophy, psychology, literature, whatever the case may be. And if ideas there in those disciplines uh, are in sync with the way in which I'm thinking about the market or a company or something like that, that's additional confirmation. And, and as I said earlier, that additional confirmation uh, increases your confidence to go forward and act. And we recently had investor and author Dennis Shanshak on the podcast. Uh-huh. He, uh, he highlighted Last Liberal Art as a recommended reading for everyone. And knowing you'd come on the podcast, he sent us a couple of questions. So regarding the multidisciplinary approach, he is wondering how one determines which disciplines to focus on and, and which are less important when it comes to investing. Well, you know, the, the idea originated uh, from Charlie Munger uh, in a, a lecture that he did back in 1994 at, at USC. University of Southern California. And, and he didn't say in that lecture, you know, you don't have to study this, you don't have to study that. He basically said that you should look at all the major mental models and all the major disciplines. So when I wrote the book, I kind of just kind of opened it up. If you were a liberal arts major today, you know, you certainly would, you know, you would study, you know, physics and biology, the hard sciences, mathematics, and then you go into the soft sciences, philosophy and psychology and sociology. Now, what we did, though, was also expanded into literature and, and, and reading great books programs. Um, so, you know, we thought that that was highly valuable. Um, I'd always thought that that art appreciation was something that should be added. Um, I wrote a book about detectives many years ago, and I came across a doctor at the Yale University Medical School, and, and he had basically said uh, that he split his medical school Uh, students into two groups, ones that took the normal coursework, others that took the normal coursework plus art appreciation. And those that had studied art appreciation seemed to have a much better success in doing diagnosis. They saw something else. They were able to see things. So I thought, you know, art appreciation would make a lot of sense. Uh, I've since thought about music and how music might might play a role. So I'm more apt, Eddie, to to want to add disciplines than than remove disciplines. I you know I'm kind of like you know more information, more ideas from more discipline is better than trying to cut things off. So I haven't really thought about what doesn't work. I'm trying to figure out what could work. <laughs> right. And say you have selected 10 or 15 disciplines to learn about, including finance of course. And if we see this as a portfolio, how many percentage would you allocate to each discipline? <laughs> Great question. I've never had that question. Um, you know, it's interesting. I think we spend way, way, way too much time uh, of our daily life just on finance accounting, reading, uh, you know, financial newspapers, watching financial news programs, uh, and not enough time uh, in the other area. I, I would think at this stage in my life, at least half of my time is spent in non-financial related readings and investigations, including like podcasts, what, what you guys are doing, listening to other authors. I don't need to continue to look at the stock market. I don't need to continue to read prognosticators telling me what the stock market is going to do. Um, so I would say almost 50% of my time is spent on reading and studying things outside finance and accounting and economics. And how much of that would you say is psychology? Because many people focus on psychology. Yeah, you're really drilling down into the particulars. <laughs> um, well, I think psychology is a huge part. I, I probably spend more time on philosophy 
than anything else. I, I, you know, I think I think the work that Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman have done, along with Schiller, and you know, th th there's some very bright minds in psychology. I, you know, and even Charlie Munger, you know, talked about decision making and things of that nature. So I, I think I've got my hands around that reasonably well. Um, I, I probably spend more time studying philosophy uh, than I do anything else. I'm trying to do more biographies. Um, you know, I, I I was underread in biographies growing up, and I find just reading biographies is fascinating. And you know, I, I'm not I'm not too particular. If I read a, a story about someone, if I can get one or two ideas out of a three four hundred page book, it, it's well worth the time uh, to read. And and so reading a lot of biographies, which in some ways is is, is taking more history courses, is, is something. So biographies, philosophy. We do a lot of work at the Santa Fe Institute, which I know you may want to talk about. Uh, tremendous amount of science work going on there. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I have a stack of books and I just try to get through them the best I can. And, and then when the pile gets low, I have a list of books that I want to buy and I'll order six, seven, eight books from Amazon. They'll show up and I'll work on that pile. So we, it's kind of in some ways it's circular, but we're, we're trying to make progress. And one thing that seems central to the Santa Fe, Fe Institute is, is the complexity. Yes. And I want to take us back to your own evolution on how to think about financial markets with a lens taken from biology. I mean, that of a complex adapti adaptive system. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, it's interesting. You know, I, I owe all of these insights to Bill Miller. Uh, Bill, as you know, is famous value investor in the United States. He was the only guy to beat the market 15 years in a row when he managed the Lake Mason Value Trust and has had a spectacular career managing a, a fund called the Miller Opportunity Fund. And, and Bill is a, is a genuine uh, multidiscipline thinker. And, and he introduced me to the Santa Fe Institute in the early 90s. And I would tell you, tell you both, when I went to the first lecture, I think it was on ant colonies and you know, something else, maybe Navajo Indians or something like that. And I walked out of the meeting and I said to Bill, I said, you know, what does this have anything to do with whether I should buy IBM or sell General Motors? I have no idea what this is about. And he goes, these are not lectures for you to get the answers to those questions. These are lectures for you to think about things differently and understand things differently. And so what happens when you're raised in, in standard portfolio management, whether you get your MBA or you study economics, it, it really is a physics-based approach. You know, reversion to the mean is it weighs heavily in our discipline. You know, historical averages, which we can talk about the fallacy of using historical averages in markets, weighs very heavily. And 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 it's very clear that you know we're seduced by the the you know the the notion that phys physics is so predictable i think i think we are seduced by that predictability and and that's why we're driven to physics based models but in reality uh the economy and the stock market like society is more of a living system a biological system that evolves adapts learns changes and and all of those attributes which readily identify what markets are are more akin to studying biology than it is physics. And so Santa Fe Institute opened up the study of looking at markets and economies and, and other things, computers, you know, you know, computer science and, and on and on as it, it, a living system that evolves and adapts. And, and, and that takes you down a lot of different paths because you begin to understand that things are in constant change, constant flux, constant evolution. 
And if you were to anchor to any, you know, kind of correspondence theory of truth that you've got it all figured out now, you don't have to learn anything different, you're going to get left behind. And, and Bill Miller was was instrumental in helping me understand that. So, I, you know, I owe him a, a deep, deep gratitude. As a, as a side note, I would tell both of you guys, the very first edition of this book came out in 2000. I think the second edition is 2013. But the first edition was actually called... Um, Lattice work, the new investing, because it, it, it keyed off of what Charlie said, build a lattice work of mental models. And I actually dedicated that book to Bill Miller for, for taking me to the Santa Fe Institute. Well, you remember in 2000, it was a technology crash and then three year bear market. And it's actually the worst time ever to bring out a book in the middle of a bear market. <laughs> if you ever want to have zero sales, bring out an investment book uh, in the middle of a bear market. So the book didn't do very well. And, but about a year and a half later, I guess we we're coming out of the bear market and my publisher, Miles Thompson, who's still my publisher today, uh, he's at Columbia Business School Press. And he basically said, why don't we change the title to investing the last liberal art? He goes, there are a lot of liberal arts majors out there. And so we retitled it. We, if you have a paperback version of the first edition of investing the last liberal art, which is Latticework, he basically ripped off the hardcover and smacked on a soft cover. But if you open it, the pages at the top read lattice work, which is the old first edition book. So that's a roundabout story. But the very first edition was uh, was dedicated to Bill Miller, who, if Charlie was the architect of how to think about multidiscipline, Bill is actually the person that has lived it, the practicality of it, that's actually tangibly lived a multidiscipline life. And I've learned so much from him. Really interesting. And as you say, many investors still take a sort of a physics view of markets, meaning stable conditions, despite the constant change that we're seeing in the environment. Um, and some even make market calls such as that the market is cheap or expensive. And some even say things like the S&P should go down to certain levels, such as 4,000 or 3,500. What do you make of those kinds of predictions? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think they have much worth. <laughs> you know, I, as, as soon as somebody on CNBC or Bloomberg starts telling me what the market does, I just hit the mute button because they absolutely have no idea what the market's going to do. Nobody has any idea what the market's going to do over the short run. So that's 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 wasted thinking. I'd rather read a book on philosophy or read, read a biography than listen to someone who's going to tell me what the market's going to do in the next three to six months. I think your predictive value on markets goes up to the degree that you extend the time horizon. And and it's well pointed out, you know, as long as the economy continues to flourish in a democratic capitalist system, you know, it's likely, you know, over time it goes up about 70% of the time. So, you know, if I were to go to, you know, Las Vegas and, and and play a roulette wheel that had a 70% probability of winning, I could stay at that roulette wheel all day long and make a good living. And and that's the stock market. I mean, the stock market is an odds on bet to go long over time, but nobody has any idea what's going to happen between now and the end of the year. Although we spend an inordinate amount of time as an industry uh, talking about it. And I think, I think it is a psychological crutch that people try to lean on because the idea that you can't you don't know what's going to happen next week, next month. It's so uncomfortable, psychologically speaking, that if someone were to say to you, yeah, I'll tell you what's going to happen next month, you immediately jump on it and go, oh, thank God, someone's going to tell me what's going to happen next month. I'm now satisfied. But they have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> so once you understand that, you can you allocate your time to doing other things and listen to market broadcasting. 
And as you said, it's now 10 years ago almost since the second edition of the book came out. And Yeah, 2013. And yeah, I did a lecture not too long ago and someone would say, would you do another one? And I certainly would, um, you know, somewhere down the road here. I mean, and I, I thought about, you know, what would I add? And I would add, you know, an art appreciation course. Uh, we'd probably add, you know, music appreciation. Um, I think I would, uh, you know, I, I would do more on reading uh, the great books, programs, literature. What is literature value? I would do a, I would do a section on writing. I always thought that writing was a wonderful discipline. And to the degree, and, and, you know, Bill would disagree with me on this. He doesn't like to write. He likes to read. I'd rather spend all my time reading than writing because writing, I'm just telling, I'm writing down what I already know what, and I'm wasting time. I want to go figure out what I don't know. But writing is a, is a wonderful discipline. And I think it has many benefits that allow people to clarify their thoughts. My mother used to say, if you write it down, you'll never forget it. And when you do write a commentary, you write a book or whatever the case may be, when you write something, it really does become a part of your soul, your intellectual soul. And you're able to talk about it, I think, a lot more intellectually after you've written something down. So th there are other chapters that we could add to the book. Looking forward to read that. And uh, in the chapter on sociology, you write that equity markets and debt markets have no central controller and that both are yep. excellent examples of self-organizing, self-reinforcing systems. And after this decade of massive central bank stimulus, we're, we're curious to hear your take on, on this. Yeah, good question, uh, Eddie. I mean, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, there is no master controller other than, you know, a, a, maybe an overriding capitalist mentality of uh, investing to get a cash return. And if you put money to, to work over time, you expect a return on that money. Maybe that's the master controller in a theoretical sense. But the whole idea about um, you know monetary policy, particularly at the central bank level, whether it's Europe or Japan or US, is is really now right, right. We're, we're really kind of in the eye of the storm of this right now. I know, you know, if you kind of go back to the 1970s, it was a monetarist view. Milton Friedman was given a Nobel Prize that all inflation is a monetary phenomena that to the degree that you print more money, it causes inflation. And, and that was true for that particular point in time. It doesn't appear to be true today, 40 years later. Um, somebody ought to, you know, reach into the coffin and take back the Nobel Prize from Milton Friedman because that's not <laughs> that's not true today because you can point to uh uh, you know, a, a massive amount of, of printing of dollars, whether it's European Central Bank. Japan is a perfect example. I think Japan's debt to GDP is around 225%, which is twice the level of the U.S. And they're they're on the border, right on the cusp of deflation. So they have twice the debt levels that the U.S. does, and they can't make inflation. So I would argue that there are other things at work um, that, that would cause inflation or deflation that seem to be overriding for this point in time, um, the monetarist view of, you know, if you expand the, the, the balance sheet, you print more money, it is a natural uh, occurrence that inflation would, would naturally follow. That that doesn't appear to be holding water right now. And and we looked at a lot of this, you know, it seems to be largely demographic, uh, you know, as the world is getting older, particularly in the developed worlds, Western Europe and Japan and the US, you know, the tendency is to save more, spend less, and, and as savings rates go up, it's looking for a home. And, and there's some views, Larry Summers, a well-known economist, you know, that and Bernanke used to talk about that's a glut of savings. There's a lot of money looking for home. And 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 when when you have that situation, uh, it does put a lid on interest rates for sure. And we're seeing that. 
But those interest rates in of themselves, um, I don't think would be low unless the lenders really didn't have a fear that inflation was going to be hyperinflation like it was in the 1970s. If people thought, if the bond market thought this was 1970s, double digit inflation, I guarantee you interest rates wouldn't be at 2% here in the US. So the bond market, which is probably one of the greatest, you know, um, greatest markets for efficiency because you've got so many people, it's highly liquid, so many diverse opinions, wisdom of the crowds, things of that nature. The bond market's telling you in Japan and Europe and the US, it's not afraid of inflation, no matter what the short-term spikes are. And they're more a function of the pandemic and the disruptions in the global supply chain than anything nefarious that's going to occur over a decade's period of time, in my judgment. Moving on to uh, psychology, uh, you mentioned in, in that chapter that myopic loss aversion is the single most important psychological obstacle for investors to do well with their investments. Uh, can you please expand on this? Well, they, they, you know, a lot of work's been done on that. It's basically, and, I, and I'm embarrassed, I can't recall the citation, but someone had done the study to the frequency you look at price changes, uh, which is, you know, myopic, you know, right? If you're looking at all your price changes and, and they go down, and you're constantly looking at them on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis, it has more of an adverse impact psychologically, negatively, on your psychological outlook than if you only looked at it once a week or once a month. So the studies are pretty clear about that to the degree that people look at stock prices or stock price changes daily versus someone who might look at it weekly, monthly, or quarterly. The negative impacts of looking at it each day are far more onerous than the negative impacts of looking at it once a month, or I would verse it and say it's more of a positive outcome if you look at price changes once a month than if you look at them once a day. And of course, what we know is now people are, you know, overdosing. I mean, they have it on their phone. They have it, you know, they're looking at the website, they're looking at the office, they have CNBC on, and they look at it constantly. And to the degree that you look at it constantly, uh, it becomes a negative force. And, And this you know, I'm going back to Tversky and Kahneman again, prospect theory. If, if something goes down, it's twice as painful for a unit of loss as the pleasure of a unit of gain. And so markets do go down or prices do go down. And when they go down, you're twice as discomforted <laughs> from that price decline than you are for a unit of gain. So, you know, to the degree that you don't look at the market, uh, it's probably, I think, you know, it's been Graham that said investors would be better off if there was no stock market. There was no daily, you know, price changes uh, that, you know, and I used to, you know, kind of wonder myself, and you know, what if the market was only open once a month, right? <laughs> and, I, you know, in a 24-hour period, you can make changes to your portfolio, and there was a liquid market for you to make changes. But after that, you couldn't do anything. Now, some would argue that that would make prices go down because, you know, the liquidity actually makes those prices go up because you have a ready market to exchange things. But, you know, from a, from a psychological aspect, it'd probably be better if the market were only open once a month. <laughs> that would work better for investors long term. Yeah, we would definitely put more more effort into study companies. At, at least, I mean, I think we're all fooled into looking into to what's happening on the market instead of doing some fundamental work. Yeah. And to go on from that a bit, I mean, loss loss aversion or um, yeah, we we sometimes hear that just because humans have biases, the stock market is per definition irrational. And yeah, I want to hear your take on that. Well, I'm kind of in, in Michael Mobison's camp. On some of this, and you know, others that have written about it, um, you know, uh, the idea that um, uh, the wisdom of the crowds book um, was very, very important in that, 
And this kind of, you know, diverting, this always goes back to when we did work at Los Alamos Alamos National Laboratory. I remember going out with Michael in the early 90s, and we met this guy at at Los Alamos National Laboratory named Norman Johnson. In the earliest days, he was putting together computer programs of of, uh, smart agents, average agents, dumb agents to solve particular problems. And when he ran the studies, he found that the most optimal makeup of decision makers to solve a problem was the most diverse. That is, if you had a collection of smart, average, and below average people, they seemed to come up collectively with the best decision than if you dispopulated it with only smart people. So, so this is Jim Zerwicki's book, you know, The Wisdom of the Crowds. And so, so if the market, when the market is efficient, it's because it has diverse inputs from all types of people. Where markets become irrational, or unstable is when it loses its diversity, when they all become bearish or they all become bullish and it loses its diversity is probably the time in which the decision-making is most at risk. And so I think the markets are reasonably efficient most of the time, uh, either at the market level or at the stock level. What you find though, that there are periods when the diversity of that opinion of the market or a stock breaks down and becomes one-sided, either too bullish or too bearish. And that's where your financial analysis comes in to take advantage of the price discrepancies that could happen if people were too bullish, you would sell. If they were too bearish, you might buy. But those inflection points occur when there's a breakdown in diversity. As long as the market's reasonably diverse in its opinion, it's usually reasonably efficient. I hope that makes sense. And what would you say are your most common biases? Well, that, you know, I, I try to check my biases at the door, but I will tell you the mistakes I make. Would that help? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the change in the in the interest rates in the U.S. from a 10-year that may go from 1.5% to 2.5%. And I think we're 177 today. And, and, and the market just, you know, had it, you know, a seizure with the idea that interest rates could go for 100 basis points. And and so, you know, they, they basically started to sell growth stocks, which are long duration assets. And, and mathematically speaking, when interest rates go up or the discount goes up, it, it does impact long duration assets more so than short duration assets. So everybody sold growth and bought value. And that's fine. I, you know, I, I get the mathematics of that. But what the market was failing to do was actually calculate what would be a 100 basis point change in the discount rate to the underlying intrinsic value. And what you basically have discovered over the past couple of weeks is that the market prices overreacted to a 100 basis point change in the discount rate. What I would also point out to you is that, you know, from 2009 after the financial crisis to 2019, I think the 10 year pretty much vacillated between two and 3% for most of the time. And we had a phenomenal 10 year bull market and we also had a 10-year bull market where growth stocks outperformed value stocks. So this whole obsession about I got to sell growth because interest rates are going up 50 to 100 basis points, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. That doesn't mean the market you know, didn't want to have that narrative. But I found that my mistakes in my career rarely have to do with anything having to do with the discount rate, whether did I discount it at 10% or 9% or 11%. Right now, just for the record, I discount everything at 10% because that's my opportunity cost. I expect that if I'm going to lend money to the stock market, I, sh- I should get at least a 10% rate of return. So that's my opportunity cost. That's my discount rate. Never mind equity risk premiums and risk free rates and modern portfolio theory. I just discount everything at 10. 
But the mistakes that I made in my career had nothing to do with discount rates. It had everything with the, to do with the competitive advantage period of the company. That is, I thought that they were going to generate a return on invested capital that would last longer, a sales growth that would last longer than what actually happened. So the mistakes that I made in investing are not so much the biases or not so much the discount rates. It's just really understanding the competitive nature of businesses operating in industries and particularly in the technology space, you know, it's rapidly evolving and changing. And so understanding those competitive advantage periods are the biggest challenge that I have. And, and, and that's, that's where I got to spend most of my time. Going back a bit to the, to the book, you mentioned that it took a lot of effort to write it and that you had to dig deep into disciplines such as philosophy that you were not that familiar with before. Um, why is philo- philosophy important for investors? Well, you know, and here I'm going back to Bill Miller. Um, he did his, his, his uh, doctoral in philosophy at Johns Hopkins and, and, and worked through the entire uh, doctoral program absent his dissertation. And, and he was heavily influenced by people like William James, you know, the father of Mer- American pragmatism. And so if you really want to think about investing from it, so, you know, we can go back to biology, kind of think of a Darwinian aspect of markets. Markets are evolutionary in nature. Pragmatism is a philosophical instrument to help you navigate a biological environment, right? It it continually evolves and changes. And so therefore your thinking must continue to evolve and change. And so he would talk about the cash value of ideas. And so you're trying to, you know, Bill says, I'm just trying to figure out what works, you know, what's working right now, what's making money, what is, what, where are the profits? Instead of getting hung up on what you think is, it should be going on because you have some correspondence theory of how you think the world works. The world is always changing. And pragmatism becomes the instrument that allows you to navigate an ever-changing world. So, you know, we spent a lot of time on pragmatism, but but the one that really stuck with me was the Austrian philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. And, you know, a 20th century, you know, great thinker, I think it was Bertrand Russell, who was no slouch himself that said that, you know, Wittgenstein was probably the greatest example of genius that he'd ever seen. And interesting, he only only wrote one book, you know, Tractus. Um, The second book, Philosophical Investigations, was actually published posthumously after he passed away. His friends collected up all his papers and some of his lecture notes and and put this book out. And it's a phenomenal book, not very long, you know, a couple hundred pages. But in there, he he basically um, uh, wrote a a picture of a triangle. I mean, he had a diagram of a triangle, a simple, you know, geometric diagram. And he, you know, pointed out, you know, what, what, what can you, what can you say about this, you know, about this diagram? And, and so, you know, you kind of think about it for a second and you go, okay, what, he, he's trying to get me to describe this thing in different ways. And so when, when you go through it, and if you read in the book, basically what he said was, you know, I can look at this thing as, you know, a triangle. I can see it as a, a you know, as a triangle that has a hole in the middle, as a solid a geometrical drawing, you know, could be standing on its face, hanging from its apex, a mountain, a wedge. I think he said an arrow, you know, a pointer, an overturned object, you know, many different ways. I think there were 12 different descriptions of a of a triangle that he came up with. And, and basically what he was saying, his philosophy was not only math, math, mathematics and language, it was language. And he basically says the words that you choose form a description of what you think is going on that ultimately becomes the explanation of what's going on. So kind of reverse engineer it. What he's basically telling you, if you choose the wrong words, you have the wrong description and the wrong explanation. So, you know, Benoit Mandelbrot at at the Santa Fe Institute, when this discussion was going on, you know, he did 
fractal geometry and, you know, the father of fractal geometry. And he bellowed out from the back of the room, said failure to explain is caused by failure to describe. So every mistake you make as an investor, typically your explanation is wrong because you have the wrong description. So what you have to think about from a philosophical standpoint, from Wittgenstein's standpoint, is do you have the right description? So, you know, go back, you know, to Eddie's question, you know, is the description that, you know, we've printed too much money and that's going to cause hyperinflation. That's one description, right? I've I, I chose the words to form a description. And this is my explanation. Well, if your description's wrong, your explanation's wrong. So do you have the right description? And, and so I spent a lot of time in my thinking, not only at the company level, but economically speaking, markets and things of that nature are, what are the current narratives? You know, Robert Schiller, Nobel Prize, wrote a book called Narrative Economics. What are the current narratives in the market? And are those narratives good descriptions? Yes, no. And those narratives are forming a description which, which is giving you an explanation of what they think is going to happen. If, if you think about it, you know, you're trying to figure out, is the market narrative right or wrong? And if it's wrong, there's your source of mispricing. If it's right, maybe there isn't any mispricing. So philosophy in so many different levels, from William James' pragmatism to Wittgenstein's theory of language uh, and how it impacts descriptions, explanations, and narratives, is hugely important. Um, to be a successful active manager. I know that was long-winded, but I'm really passionate about that. I can notice. So you've been um, studying the multidisciplinary approach for decades. Yep. And I can't think of any better to ask how you practically use this as a portfolio manager. Well, you know, hopefully this 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 entire podcast is kind of leaning towards, you know, how how we used it, you know, at, at the metal level, right? You know, at the at the level of, you know, how we think about it. You know, I... I think we used an example in the book, uh, you know, about Amazon, and, and this goes to Wittgenstein, right? When Amazon came out, Bill and I, you know, owned Amazon at the IPO, and two things were going on simultaneously. Um, one is that Bill had made a ton of money uh, in the 1990s on Dell Computer, which was a, you know, a, a direct distributor of personal computers to individuals, and he sold at prices below, you know, Compaq, Hewlett Packard, Gateway. And you bought them over the 1-800 number and you got your credit card that night in the bank account, but they didn't have to pay the chip suppliers or the monitor keyboard for 30 to 60, 90 days. And so he basically had a wonderful business of, of growing the business on the accounts receivable of his customers, what ultimately became negative working capital and the very first company to generate 100% return on capital. So that stock went up 10,000% in the decade of the 1990s. When we went into Amazon, uh, a couple of things were going on simultaneously. When we did the work on Amazon and built, you know, talked to Jeff Bezos, you know, you know, Bill asking, you know, what is the business model? And and and, and Jeff said, well, you know, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like Dell, which is, you know, I get books, um, I sell books, but I don't have to pay the publisher for ninety days, and sometimes I can give the books back with no penalty. And, and so when Jeff began to describe, so he's describing his business as something in Dell. You know, we knew we were home free, right? We just said, well, this is this is a wonderful business model. But then you go to the market level, and the, how was the market describing Amazon when it initially came out? They describe it as Barnes and Noble, a brick and mortar superstore that sells books. And they looked at the accounting factors, which is a stupid way in which to analyze businesses, just accounting factors alone, and said, oh, the price earnings multiple is lower, the price to sales is lower in Barnes and Noble, and it's way too high, and and Amazon, so you should, uh, you know, buy Barnes and Noble and sell Amazon. Well, that didn't work out too well. <laughs> that, didn't, that wasn't a very good way to do it. And then it started doing, you know, appliances and, you know, CDs and 
furniture and all these things. And they say, oh, no, 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 it's not, it's not, it's not Barnes and Noble, it's Walmart. So description of Amazon is Walmart. So you should go long, should do a pair trade, go long Walmart and shell and sell Amazon. Oh, well, that was a horrible <laughs> investment to make because the description was totally wrong. But those that understood Dell, I mean AOL is kind of a Dell business model, you know, understood that. You know, something that earns 100% return on capital could be priced at 50 times earnings and still be undervalued where the market thought it was grossly overvalued. Well, that all leads back to Wittgenstein, right? And, and, and so clearly, you know, the, the study of philosophy has made a lot of money for guys like Bill Miller, you know, and I piggyback those ideas. But, you know, I'm trying to figure out what is the right narrative of these stocks and does the market have it wrong? And it's, it's all back to description, Wittgenstein, and, and then having a pragmatic viewpoint that it's always evolving and changing and you need to be evolving and changing and you can't get hung up just on one viewpoint. I think that's a great summary of the whole discussion. Um, this being a book podcast, uh, as us, we know that you love to read. Uh, which books have been the main inspiration for you? Well, you know, all the, you know, as I said, you know, the books, I would, uh, I read all of the James biographies for sure. Um, I'm looking up on my shelf, uh, you know, the book that, that's one of the favorites uh, in our, you know, in our, our group, you know, the Metaphysical Club by Louis Manan is the whole history of, of pragmatism from Oliver Wendell Holmes, Charles Sanders Pierce, William James on through the line. That, 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 that was terrific. Um, what else have I been reading? The biographies of Oliver Wendell Holmes, read that. Uh, this great book called Immunity to Change that, uh, uh, Kaplan had had written about you know you know immunity changes your ability to actually change. That was a good book. I'm looking up on my shelf. I read all of Mobison. Anything that Mobison writes, I consume. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. Uh, what else? You know, from time to time, I read you know Sherlock Holmes. I always like reading. You know, I have his you know collection right up here, and I you know from time to time will read different short stories. Sherman Kent's um, uh, it was written in the 1940s about uh, strategic analysis uh, is a good way in which to think about how to um, capture data and, and, and organize it in such a way. So, you know, it, it, we cast the net wide, do a lot of work on stoicism uh, because you really have to have a stoic mindset, I think, to uh, to do well in markets. And so, you know, it, it, it really is a catch all, you know, everything different, different types of thing. And it's whatever you're in the mood today to to read, I'll, I'll grab something on the library. I just went through Christopher Hitchens' essays called Arguably, and, and Christopher Hitchens had passed away a number of years ago, but probably one of the greatest American essayists out there and just a brilliant way in which he has to form arguments. So, you know, it's a little bit of everything, guys. <laughs> Is there something you avoid? I don't read romantic novels. <laughs> 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 Somehow or another, I just can't get into, you know, you know, Bronte and I, you know, Weathering Heights and stuff. I, I just can't go down that path. I try, I try to read them, but I, you know, I just, I just can't get through them. So, you know, I really try to be open-minded, both fiction and nonfiction, but you know, romantic novels, I just can't seem to get through anymore. <laughs> Thank you, Robert, for a fascinating conversation about you and your book. Do you have something more you want to add before we finish up? No, I just, you know, you know, when, when the young people, you know, we sponsor a lot of interns and, and we things like that. We, we do two things, which is, you know, you got to read it's, you know, this is not LinkedIn and, and Twitter and, 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 you know, you, and, and emails, you know, you've got to read. And I don't know anybody in this business that isn't successful, as Charlie Munger said, that hadn't done a lot of reading. 
So you got to go back to it. Uh, you may think it's laborious, but it, it's not. And, and you've got to be a reader. And then I would tell them, write down what you're thinking about. You know, write down, uh, you know, what, what, what you think is important. And those writings, you know, become very important. It can be a source to your resume. You know, I, I said, you know, these kids have got tremendous resumes. They go to great schools. They've got great GPAs, the great internships. And they put down the resume in the employer's desk. And he's looking at it. And he's got 12 of them that look just the same way. And I said to him, you know, if you ever write a research paper or a commentary, something you think is really, really good, then attach it to your resume and say, hey, this is something I wrote. I think you might enjoy this. That alone is going to make you distinguished amongst a pile of resumes that are indistinguishable. So read and write. And if you do that consistently over your lifetime, I, I, there's no doubt in my mind you'll, you'll, you'll do much better. There's an old cliche that, that the liberal arts majors for the Middle Ages, because it's not until you're middle age that you begin to understand how valuable it is. So you're 20 years old today. You just graduated. I know you're a specialist. But if you want to be successful 20 years from now, you need to be multidisciplinary in your thinking, no doubt. Great. And where can our audience follow you and, and buy your books? Well, we, we, we work for Equity Compass. Um, I'm the CIO of Equity Compass. Our website is www.equitycompass.com. And we have our commentaries there, bios and, and things of that nature. That's probably the best way. Uh, for you to kind of keep up with what we're doing. Uh, I post my commentaries there, my bios and things like that. That would be a good place to start. Thank you so much, Robert, and have a great day. Good luck, guys. Thanks for the invitation. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Redeye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.